This morning is September 24th. It's Sunday morning. Our message this morning is Cookie Cutter Christianity. Actually, I, I changed the title. Forgive me. That's what I did first. Now it's Competing Cookie Cutters. Competing Cookie Cutters. Patricia, you were baking yesterday, weren't you? Yeah. You ever seen two cookie cutters compete? They're not supposed to, huh? They're molded a certain way. And uh, when you stamp them, they're supposed to produce their own unique signature, aren't they? I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. How silly would it be to have two cookie cutters and uh, one thinks they're better than the other one? They have different purposes. Yesterday I was reading... Anybody know who Aesop is? Wrote Aesop's fables? These are ancient Greek fables. I saw a funny story as I was reading it. The Jewish rabbis adapted this, but I'll give you the original version. said that there was a middle-aged man with salt and pepper hair. No, that's hard to imagine, Craig. It's hard to imagine, right? Middle-aged man with salt and pepper hair. And uh, he had two mistresses. Now, I know we don't talk about this kind of stuff in church, but this is not a normal church. Two mistresses. So he goes to the younger one and she says, Baby, you are so good looking. That gray hair, though, we need to do something about that. And this is before you could just go by Grecian formula, right? So she started to pluck out all of the gray hairs. But later in the afternoon, he went to the older mistress that he was seeing. And she said, you know, you spent a long time getting this sexy. And that gray hair is a crown of wisdom. She plucked out the black hairs. The result was they both got a bald-plated lover. (laughs) There is something in the kingdom to not trying to fit in to anybody else's camp. Not trying to be younger than you are. Not trying to be older than you are. Not trying to be someone else. It'll cause you to lose your hair, without doubt. (laughs) Turn to Deuteronomy. We'll be in Deuteronomy 8. Did you all enjoy when Gabriel Mays preached last week? Well, I enjoyed that too. So I'm going to pick up with the scripture that he left off with. Competing cookie cutters. In Deuteronomy 8, starting in the second verse. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, to test you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. The Israelites spent 40 years in the desert. It put them in positions time after time where they had a need that would arise for no other reason than God could fulfill that need. During that time period, it was a chance to glance, get a glimpse into their heart to see what they were really after. Did they serve God only when times were good, when there was plenty? Or in times of want, did they serve Him just the same, trusting that He would provide for them? Deuteronomy 29.5 speaks about the very same event and says, I did this so that you would follow Me and know that I'm God. Saints, there are a lot of people in this world that call themselves Christians. Everywhere you go, people say that they're Christians because they're Americans. The people that I admire the most, honestly 
I checked into a hospital with a man one time and they said, you know, what is your religious affiliation? He looked him right in the eye and said, honestly, I don't have one. I thought, well, at least there's an honest man. Because what does everybody else do in the same situation? You think of whatever will cause you to be persecuted the least. If it's Methodist, you're Methodist. If it's Catholic, you're Catholic, you know? You say whatever it is to get you through that situation without feeling awkward. Well, at least the man was honest. He said, I don't have one. There is something to be said for sober judgment in the kingdom. But with all that said, I want to encourage you to look at the Scripture in a new way today. Turn with me to the New Testament. We're going to be in the book of John. Now, you all have to turn with me. I'll cry and run out of here. Y'all don't believe me anymore when I say that, do you? I'll send Devin to your house and he'll hurt you. I got a chance to ride in the car with Devin for a little while the other day. Some 600 miles. Find out a lot about person in a confined space like that. Devin has got a great sense of humor. I am glad that young man is in this church. Y'all love him? Amen. Tammy, I'm glad you're here today too. This woman's just moved from north of Dallas to be here. And uh, that's an admirable thing. In fact, our statement of faith for our church says we'll move in whatever direction to obtain the favor and peace of the Lord. So, amen. That's what she did. Y'all in uh, John 20? What is the most momentous event in all of the Bible? I mean, this is the climax of human history if you think about it. The resurrection of the dead. I mean, when we're going to talk about what is the most important thing in all of the Scripture... Some would say the cross and others would say the resurrection. They go together. But let's imagine for a moment that Nicholas is telling a story about the resurrection. Okay? Because when we read this, and we're going to read what John wrote, some of you from South Louisiana, like me, will think St. John wrote this. Others of you from a different background will say the Apostle John wrote this. And you say it almost with a sense of reverence and awe, right? Because this is the Holy Scripture. Now, I don't disparage any of that. You know that I believe that this is the Word of God. But I want to encourage you to look at something. Why do we have four Gospel accounts? Think about that. we got different perspectives, right? If Dad tells a story and I tell a story, we're going to come from vastly different places when we tell that story. Neither one's incorrect. They're just from our own point of view. Listen to this. Early on the first day of the week, While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now we read that and we say, oh, John is so modest, right? John, he doesn't even want to put his name in there. He's so modest, he's going to say, you know, the nameless guy who Jesus loves, the other disciple. Isn't that how you've been taught to read that? Me too. And it's correct, but I want you to notice the frequency with which he says something in the next few verses, okay? Uh, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. This is a real common practice in the first century. You would write under a pseudonym, right? Samuel Clemens is Mark Twain, okay? The disciple Jesus loved is John. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put Him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now picture for a moment, Antoine and I, we're talking, right? 
We're telling the story. And I said, you know, Nick, Antoine and I got this news. But the one who Jesus loved took off and went running first. And he outran me and reached the tomb first. Now, if you're reading this about any other two people, you think, why do you have to say that? You know? Watch with that in mind. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Thank you for that clarification. I didn't know what it meant when you said you outran him. Oh, that's right. You also got there first. Just had to drive that point home for us. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, <laughs> arrived and went into the tomb. Come on, saints. Come on, if I'm telling the story and I say, by the way, Adam and I, you know, we went to uh, Baton Rouge. We left at the same time, <clears throat> but I got there first. You say, okay, well, Eric's, you know, interested in who got there first. Then in the next sentence, I say, you know, and because I got there first, I was the first one to walk in. <laughs> and then Adam came in behind me. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Is there a little hint in his personality here that perhaps... There's a tiny little bit of rivalry with him and Peter? Could be, huh? Could be. We'll watch. Now, mind you, we're talking about the greatest event in all of human history, right? The resurrection. And what kind of details are we including? The one Jesus loved. <laughs> the other disciple outran Peter. Got there first. Peter was behind me. <laughs> you know, I mean, think about that for a minute. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went in the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Another cultural note here, and I'm going to leave this alone and move on. Why did John get there first? History tells us he's younger. Maybe 20 years younger than Peter, right? Why didn't he go in? You're going to find out John was known to the high priest. It's very possible that John was a Levite. Out of all the twelve tribes of Israel, John very well may have been in the Levitical tribe. And the Levites would not go into a room with a dead body because it would make them unclean. So he got to the tomb first but wouldn't go inside because he was scared Jesus might be there and that would make him unclean. Peter had no such, uh, no such problems. He went dancing right in. Probably not a Levite. I want to talk to you for a minute about the differences between these two guys. Because this builds to John 21 where we have some conflict. In John 18, you don't have to turn there, John 18, verse 15, we find out in the Gospel that John's family is personally known to the high priest. In fact, John is outside of the courtyard where Jesus is on trial. Peter can't go into that courtyard. John goes in, talks with the high priest, and then comes back and gets Peter. When you move on from John 18.15, we find out in Mark 1.20 that John's family had hired servants. Now, both Peter and John were fishermen, but John had hired servants. That speaks of wealth. 
during this time period. When you move on from there, you find out that John's mother also traveled with Jesus. You remember? She says, hey, Jesus, I want you to do this one little thing for me. Will you agree? Because you know, I want you to agree before I ask. Jesus said, what is it? She said, I want my sons to sit on your right and left. He said, oh, lady, you don't know what you're asking me. Okay? But this speaks, the Word says that the women who traveled with Jesus supported Him financially. The picture that I'm trying to paint for you is John might be 20 years younger than Peter. Although they come from the same occupation, one comes from wealth, has hired hands, and has a family of prominence, while the other is a little bit older. Think about Peter. Luke 5.10 speaks of Peter being a partner with the family of Zebedee in the fishing business. I want to paint this picture for you. Let's just say that Les and I are in the same business, right? We're both shrimp fishermen, right? He's much better at it than I am. But my family owns the boats. The other guys that work on the boat work for my family. Now, Les and I are partners, but Les is the foreman. Okay? That's not hard to imagine, huh? I'd do exactly what he said. That means that Les and I have a unique relationship. I'm the boss's kid, right? I'm 20 years younger than Les. I'm the heir of all of this. But Les is the one with all of the experience. Les is the one that is in charge. Is it hard to imagine that there could be some friction there from time to time? Now, both of us set out to follow Jesus. Right? Both of us did. Let me ask you something, though, about the story. How many times in all of the Gospels can you think about the Apostle John having made a mistake recorded in Scripture? Raise your hand if you can think of one. No, John is the favored one. The one Jesus loved, right? He did make a mistake one time. Lord, can we call down fire on those people? The Bible calls him a son of thunder. He was like a lot of men, full of energy and zeal. <laughs> is that how that saying goes? Yeah, that's the King Eric translation. He is full of energy and zeal. He wanted to accomplish stuff. He wanted to get something done, right? Well, how about Peter, though? Peter, let's walk through Peter's life in the Gospel for a moment, okay? Peter, he gets out of a boat, he walks on water, but what's the emphasis of the story? He sank, Right? Well, moving on from there, Peter gets a, a great revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Followed by what? Get behind me, Satan. You always have in mind the things of men. Are Peter's errors right out there for everybody to see? Even at the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are there. Jesus appears transfigured, right? Right before their eyes. You know what Peter does? He says, oh, dude, let's build some tabernacles, some lean-tos, some little portable tents right here. It's good for us to be here. Who's he talking to? Jesus. You think Jesus doesn't know what the situation... He didn't need Peter's help. You know what Mark writes in the column of his gospel? Puts it in parentheses? Peter was out of his mind, didn't know what he was talking about because he was so scared. How would you like that written in the Bible for all times for somebody to see? How about moving on from there? What about the Last Supper? Everybody's laying around the table, right? Eating on their left or reclining on their left arm, eating with their right hand. Where is John? Oh, he's reclining against Jesus. He's the one whom Jesus loved, the favored boy, right? The one who was born into wealth, had hired hands, 
Daddy probably owned the boats that Peter worked on. Where is Peter? Peter's across the table having to throw a little olive or something at, at John saying, hey man, he keeps talking about somebody, uh, somebody who's going to uh, betray him. Is it me? The foreman's having asked the kid, hey, look, since you're sitting closer to Jesus, would you ask Him for me? At the Last Supper, Peter's upset. Jesus comes around and says, hey man, I'm going to wash your feet. He says, no, Lord, never. You won't wash my feet. Said Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have a park with me in this ministry. Okay, well then wash me. Constantly, Peter's jumping out there full of zeal, ready to lead, and constantly getting slapped down. Now, I know none of you can relate to that, right? None of you tried to do anything right and got slapped down. Some of you got slapped down by me. I'm sorry about that. It's part of my job. God loves us, He disciplines us. What is the answer? Is the answer to go sit in a corner somewhere or do anything? Watch, Peter gets a special commission. Turn with me to John 21. Peter's the most corrected disciple recorded in the Scripture. Now, I know y'all can't relate to that, but I certainly can. If a slap on the wrist is what disciples received, mine ought to have been bloody for those first five or ten years in the kingdom. I was full of good ideas that weren't necessarily God. The first weekend I was saved, I went to the mall in Baton Rouge. We made some 10,000 tracks, right? Because how many of you got saved by reading a track, by the way? One. Well, one in 40, that's uh, not great odds, is it? You wouldn't bet on a fight. Oh, y'all don't do that, right? None of us have ever. Don't play bingo. We don't bet. Never seen a lottery card because we're Christians. I understand. One in 40 is not great odds, is it? No, it's not. I wanted to do something for Jesus. I wanted to get out and do something for Jesus. So I went straight to the mall, went to the Hallmark store, and I stuffed every greeting card in their building with a track. They didn't appreciate that very much. They're not in the track-selling business. So the little rent, the mall security came and tracked me down. Right about the time I had just grabbed hold of some biker by his chest hair because he was jerking around his kid like on a leash and was proclaiming to him how much Jesus loved him. That's how, those of you that didn't get saved by a track, you got saved because somebody was grabbing you by that sensitive hair right here, right? No, of course not. I was full of zeal, but I needed discipline. And so the Lord provided discipline in my life. God will use people like Peter who are not scared to step out and get it wrong. They just try. Watch this calling for Peter. In John 21, this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to His disciples after He's been raised from the dead. Starting in verse 14. This was, yeah, watch this. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to His disciples after He was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love Me more than these? What a question! What does that mean? Do you truly love me more than these? He gives him a, an answer. Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. What we have here at this time is a momentous occasion in Peter's life. What I read you out of John's account of the resurrection is the epic in human history. I mean, the, the very top. But in Peter's life, this is going to be the pivotal moment in his life. 
The moment when he first receives a divine commission from God. Everything else prior to this was for preparation. It was for learning, for discipleship. Now he's being commissioned to do something. Wouldn't you say that's pretty important? What has Peter just done though? Just prior to this, what did Peter do? He had denied him three times. At the lowest point in Peter's life, when he felt like the biggest failure, is when Jesus appeared to him and gave him his life's task to do. Saints, why is it that we always think that it'll be on some mountaintop experience where the clouds will part and Charlton Heston will lean over and say, Patricia, you must go do so and so. Why is it that we envision things that way? The Bible says it's a broken and contrite heart that God won't despise. He takes men who are of low reputation and little account and does great things with him. When somebody is high and lifted, when they are the prince of Egypt like Moses was, God can't use them because everybody will say, oh, it was in Moses' strength that God did this or that. Instead, He let Moses get broken down 40 years to where Moses didn't think that he spoke well, didn't want to do it and was scared. He said, Lord, I can. I need help. That's right where God wants us. You're going to find out that Jesus did not come for those who had it all together. He was not looking for the righteous, those who thought they were righteous. He was looking for the people that were honest enough to say, you know, I I don't know about all this, Lord, but I do know that my life's not going well. And if you really are God, I could use your help here. That almost sounds sacrilegious to some of you, huh? If you really are God, I could use your help here. But that's exactly what the encounters with Jesus were like. He healed people who didn't know who He was to show them who He was. You know why the world knows very little about Jesus? Those who wear His name and call themselves Christians don't live or act like Him. The church needs to stand up and be the church. It's time. Now, back to this exchange with Peter and John. He says, John! Or, I'm sorry, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you really love me? There's an interesting thing that happens here with the Greek words. In Greek, there's several ways to say love. In English, love means a lot of things, right? Uh Uh-oh, little kids, hold your ears. Judah, hold your ears. If somebody says, hey, I made love all night last night, that means something different than if you say, hey, I love my sister, doesn't it? We use the exact same word, but it means something different based on context. Well, Greek helps us clear that up. And when Jesus says, y'all didn't think we could say that in church, huh? Go read Song of Songs sometimes. You think the Bible's not practical? It's an entire book on that subject. Look, all the teenagers are going to run out and read that right away. Whatever I can do to encourage Bible study, right? Yeah, Devin will be posting it on his MySpace page. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? That word love there is agape. Now, in the Christian world, we've taken the word agape and we've made it some supernatural love, some love that is the kind that only God can love. Friends, that's not founded well in the Scripture. I was taught that. We see churches that are called agape fellowship, blah, blah, blah. When you read about the word agape, God says that He loves the world and uses the word agape. Uh, But He also says, I philo the world, which is another kind of love. In fact, agape tends to mean pretty much the same thing as philo, except that when they are put in close proximity together in a sentence, it's for the purpose of contrast. Love pretty well means the same thing in every sentence. 
except when you set two sentences beside each other and you use it differently, you can see the contrast. You understand what I'm saying? I don't want to go into a Greek lesson here. But this is important. Jesus says, do you love me like with head knowledge? Peter, is that how you love me? Agape means that you see someone's needs and you're willing to show them love by meeting those needs. When Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you need to love your enemies, it was agape. Now, do you have a warm, fuzzy feeling about your enemies? If Big Les slaps you right across the face, you turn him the other cheek because y'all are all just like Jesus. Does that give you a warm, fuzzy feeling inside? No, it gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling on your face, right? Jesus doesn't want you to feel a warm, emotional, heightened experience with your enemy. That's not what He's saying. He says, I want you to see their needs. I want you to meet them. I want you to feed them. I want you to act like I would act towards them. That's agape. Now, Philo is something else. Philo is like a son's love for his father. It's like a brother's love for his brother. That is driven from an intense emotional situation. When Ashley says, I love you, Keith, and she says it all the time, right, Keith? When she says that to Keith, that's not just a, I want to meet your needs. You know, I want to make sure you're clothed and well-fed. That's a, oh man, I get tingling sensation all up and down my back and neck when I think about you, Keith. I love you. That's an emotionally driven love. Okay, now with that in mind, I'm going to substitute in here some words to help you understand what this Greek is about. If you haven't amplified, it's basically what the Amplified says. Simon, son of John, do you love me with head knowledge more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you from my heart. That's basically what that word love means. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me with head knowledge? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you from my heart. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me emotionally, driven from the heart? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me emotionally, driven from the heart? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you from the heart. What this whole exchange is about is Peter loves Jesus. There's no question. He keeps saying, I follow you, Lord. I'm in my heart driven to love for you like a son would love his father. He says, yeah, but do you agape me? Do you love me enough to meet my needs? To do what I'm asking you to do? And each time he says, feed my sheep. See, we have this idea in the West that love is a warm, fuzzy feeling towards somebody. And it can be. But love is also what you do every day for someone. How many of you guys have ever said, you know, my daddy didn't love me. He never hugged me. He never kissed me. You know, he never... You know, you lay on a couch and a leaf blew in the window. It landed on your foot. It was your dad's fault and your life's never been good since. Right? We have a whole generation that complains about the World War II generation. They were not good men. They didn't know how to show a thing and all those things. In the Bible, affection is that they went to work, that they brought home a paycheck, that they put a roof over your head and made sure that you were taken care of. That is a legitimate form of love in the Bible. And what Jesus is asking is, I know you have a warm emotional attachment to you, but do you love me enough to do something for me? 
Come on, y'all. You're looking at me like monkey staring at a computer. Had you never been in that situation? You love a relative, but not enough to help them move? <laughs> I love you, Pastor, but ugh, my back, you know? <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. You love somebody, you have a warm emotional incline towards them. But you don't love them enough to go work that shovel all day long for them, do you? Well, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. What Peter and Jesus are discussing at this moment is a reinstatement. Peter, when the chips were down, you denied me. What I want you to get is that I need you to work in my service. I need you to be about feeding my lambs, feeding my sheep, taking care of the body of Christ. This is your commission. How many of you would like to have that discussion with Jesus? I mean, what an honor. The King of Kings is saying, Jennifer, look, i got this special task for you. And it's so cool that we're going to discuss it for three exchanges here. Lindy, that would make you cry, wouldn't it? I bet it would. I know Lindy. This would move your heart. Let's see uh, what happens with Peter. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. What he's laying out there for Peter is, Peter, I know that you have a warm attachment for you, but I need you to be about my business. He repeats this three times. He says, in fact, Peter, you need to understand, you've been the kind of man that did what you wanted when you wanted. There will be a day when the world will kill you for my sake, and you have to follow me. He's saying, hey, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard, but you have to follow me. Those are the first words that Jesus ever spoke to Peter too, by the way. Follow me. I will make you a fisher of men. So this is not new news to Peter, but it's a reinstatement of the vision. I want you to, for a moment, imagine, Adam, that Jesus Himself is speaking to you. And not only does He tell you what your life is going to be about, He's even going to tell you how it ends. Is this not an epiphany? Is this not a moment that would move you in spirit, those of you that really love the Lord? Of course it is. How does Peter respond? Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Can you imagine? John's writing in the Gospel for all the world to see. Oh yeah, the one that Jesus loves. He was following Peter and Jesus as they were talking about this. And by the way, he's the same one that was reclining on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper when Peter was nervous about who was going to betray him. And uh, Peter's the one that betrayed him, not like Judas, but he did betray him. Isn't that interesting that that's written here? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Saints, you're given a divine commission from God. Nick's is different from Devon's. Brent's is different from Antoine's. It's different. And when we spend our time looking around because of carnality in the church going, but what about them? I'm called to preach. Uh, and Joel's the one who's preaching. What about him? I'm called to sing. And Matthew's the one that's singing. What, what about them? This man has just received a divine commission from on high. His own unique imprint on the world that he's supposed to make. And he's concerned about the guy on his left or right. We can look and go, oh, poor stupid Peter, right? 
No, because we do the very same thing. Why I said competing cookie cutters is you go into different churches today, right? We have agreed in writing on the only things that our church will hold as foundational truths of the Bible. We have agreed in writing on the 14 points that will unify us, trying to make us all look just alike in every area. In some churches, you're given a dress code right away. Facial hair, no facial hair, jeans, no jeans, permanence, no permanence. Whatever it is, all to make everybody look exactly the same. And yet, what God has called you to is your own unique path following Him. The only way that it looks like somebody else's path is to the extent that you are both following Him. You know, this is not new to the Scripture. When you think about the creation, man was created in whose image? Then why are some of us ugly and some pretty? Why? You're all made in God's image. Why are some ugly and some pretty? I don't know. Take it up with the designer. We all reflect Him in some way. Every one of us. How different are human beings? Joel and I have different backgrounds. Joel, you're from the Philippines. Is that right? I'm not. You know, I'm from a third world country called Louisiana. <laughs> and yet... Oh, uh-oh. I'm sorry. Matthew, get him. <laughs> and yet what I'm trying to say is we all reflect God in some way. You are called in a unique fashion. And to try to compete with somebody else that is called uniquely will only pull you off your course. Turn with me for a minute to Mark. I'm going to read you a few scriptures out of Mark. Is that all right with you all? Good. Good. You don't really have a choice. Dad's in front of the door. (laughs) I used to fall asleep in church. I know that's hard for you to imagine. It was a denominational church where the pastor wore a dress. I mean, a gown. And uh, they threw water on things. And the most fun I ever had was sneaking the wine out of the... Uh, off the uh, Lord, what was that? Out of the communion. You know? We had those little squirt bottles to fill the tiny little cups. We'd stand in the back when nobody could see us and see if we could shoot them from Nick to me. You know? Most fun we ever had there, and I fell asleep sometimes, and Pop's big hand would reach around my mother like he was going to give her a hug, you know? And he has this giant ring from playing in the cotton bowl, sugar bowl, one of those bowls. And he'd thump me on the head with it. You know, I'd wake up, you know, and listen to Pastor Icicle talk about something that was important to him. I don't want church to be that way, guys. It's not about entertaining you. It's about teaching you about the abundant life. The reason that I'm preaching on this subject is because I believe that you need to hear it. You all are striving for God in some way. And it is a normal thing if you're running in a race to consider how the guy on your left and right runs. But if you watch too closely, you'll fall. You know, I broke my arm in quite a few places. I had a bruise and a very long scar on my left elbow. I boxed that year. I wrestled. I played football. We won't tell them how many times I got suspended for fighting. And I broke my arm running track. You know how I did it? I know this is hard to believe, too. Fat as I'm getting that I was the fourth anchor in the quarter-mile relay, the fourth man. And you know how I broke my arm? 
There were people on my left and right that I was straining for the tape, trying to beat to the tape. And as I glanced one way, I lost my balance and I fell. I wish I could tell you that I fell across the tape first. I fell about three feet from the tape and had a broken arm. Later, they could time my 40 on a calendar, right, Matthew? <laughs> said, Stevens is all right, but he can't run out of sight in two weeks. All right, are you all in Mark? All right, in Mark 1, starting in verse 16. If I can find it on my page. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed Him. If nothing else was going to be said about Brad Hull in his whole life, I would like it to be that when Jesus spoke to him in some way, He simply did it. You know, in church it doesn't work that way. Jesus speaks, and what do we do? We form a committee to decide whether it was really Jesus. Then we argue about whether or not it's economically feasible or whether it's a good idea. Then we water it down to the point where what we're doing is not at all what God said. We're building gymnasiums and giving away donuts. If you don't think that's true, drive around right after church. You'll see it everywhere. These men heard a word from Jesus, and they followed in obedience. And yet, the last exchange between Peter and Jesus before Jesus ascends into the heavens is repeating this same theme. Apparently, we need to be reminded because we get concerned about what everybody else is doing and how they're doing it. Whether or not Nick has got wealth and a life of ease or not. I want to tell you, the group that I was discipled with had people of varied backgrounds in it. There was a young man named Preston Coles. And Preston was a little bit like John talented in every area. Preston had been a drummer in a heavy metal band and uh, then fell in love with Jesus, learned to play the guitar in some ungodly short period of time and had a supernatural anointing on him to worship. I mean, it was unbelievable, you know, effortless. Preston came from a wealthy background. Preston was a tall, good-looking guy with blonde hair and blue eyes and spoke well and was very well educated. If you're not careful, those are the kind of people you can get jealous of in the kingdom. And if you come into Christ around the same time and you're set in the same exact setting with somebody else and you're called to similar things, it's normal to want to compare yourself with other people, isn't it? And yet Jesus will have no part of it. You know where you learn to glorify God? is when you embrace the diversity that is among you and you quit trying to shove people into neatly formed little categories. The truth is, there's not a label for what Craig is. There's not a label for what Gary Kenshin is. There are some general classifications in the Scripture. Pop's got a gifting for administration. I could say, well, his gift is administration. That's ridiculous. That's one of his many gifts. I can't classify what he is. It takes a lifetime to get to know him. It takes a lifetime to begin to appreciate all that God's called Brent to do. So how could I compete with him? And yet, what is the first thing a pastor who meets me says? Oh, hey, where'd you go to seminary? What year did you graduate? How many are in your church? Why? Why is any of that important? Well, I want to know whether I'm older or younger than you. I want to know whether the school I went to was more or less expensive. And I want to know whether my church is bigger or smaller than yours. 
with people like this leading God's body, is it any wonder that the church is so incredibly immature? If Paul were writing a letter to the American church today, do you think he might say, stop backbiting each other or you will devour one another? You're acting like mere infants? Yeah? If he wrote that to the first century church that people were being raised from the dead in, that blind eyes were being opened in and thousands were being saved, don't you think he might write that to us? Well, then let's be different. Peter received his call. And his call said, follow me. Everybody receives that same call. It's just that following Him, He leads us in different places. Right? Okay. Look at Mark 2. Mark 2, starting in verse 13. Tell me when you're there. There. Mark 2, 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to Him, and He began to teach them. As He walked along, He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Y'all say that with me. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Alright, now look to your left. Look to your right. Ugly or pretty, they're sinners. Who Jesus has called to be righteous. None of us are here because we're perfect. None of us are here because we have it all together. Why do you think Jesus does? What did He tell the Pharisees when a woman fell at His feet and started washing His feet with her hair? The Pharisees said, if He knew what kind of woman this was, He wouldn't let her touch Him. What did He say? Those who have been forgiven much love much. Why were you called? You were called because you were forgiven much, which means that your love for Him ought to be enormous and you should follow Him wherever He wants to lead you. It's not a question anymore. The day that you said, Jesus, You are my Lord, what you said is You are my owner and controller. Where you go, I will follow. I belong to You. And yet, what do we do? We debate it every time it's unpopular. Jesus, if I do that, my mom will be mad. Jesus, if I do that, my dad won't talk to me anymore. Jesus, if I do that, I won't have any more money. Jesus, if I do that, the church might not like it. Isn't that how that gets us everywhere that we don't want to be? Compromise that leads to destruction? Peter needed a call from God. And the call was, feed my lambs at all costs. Even though it's going to cost you your life, just like it did Jesus, you feed my lambs. He didn't have to consult with a denominational headquarters. He didn't have to go make sure that somebody else approved of his doctrine. His job was to feed the lambs. And what was the biggest distraction in Peter's life? But what about John? What's John going to do? You know what's ironic about that? Peter was probably 20 years older than John. And, you know, John in many ways probably seemed like a naive kid, but he had been blessed in so many ways. Peter and John show up together 
throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. Peter had a brother, Andrew. You never hear about him, right? It's always Peter and John. In the book of Acts, same thing. Even after the resurrection, Peter and John go before the Sanhedrin. Peter and John are beat for the name of Jesus. Peter and John said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I freely give you. Peter and John go to Samaria and see people. They were called as a team. Isn't it funny the people that are closest to you are the ones you're most likely to compete with? You have no idea what I'm talking about, do you, Nicholas? No, of course not. You love with all of your heart the guy who's striving right alongside you because you've trudged through the dirt together. You have battled the same ground. You've been in the foxhole together. And yet, you stand back and say, why does Matthew get to do blah, blah, blah? And i got to do blah, blah, blah. This ungodly behavior has got to die in us. There is a situation between Jesus and John the Baptist that arose. John, John, this guy Jesus, the one that you baptized, you know, he's baptizing more people than you. Now, that wasn't really even true, like most rumors are not. (laughs) You know what John's response was? A man can receive only that which was given him from heaven. I myself told you that I must decrease and he must increase. Where is that heart in the church today? Where is the heart that says, You know, Les, I want you to outshine me because my goal in life is to feed you so that you can do better than I did. Every father wants his son to outshine him until his son starts to outshine him. And then it starts to feel odd. You know what? Is my life not good enough for you? I've been a bricklayer all my life. Is there something wrong with that? And on and on and on. And it's been the same in the carnal kingdom. It's been the same in church. I want Nicholas to do better than me until everybody starts to say, you know, Nicholas preaches pretty good. (laughs) I had a guy tell my pastor one time, you better quit letting that boy preach. He's going to get your job. And unfortunately, I think it found a home in the heart. Because all of a sudden, I started to be treated differently. It is not supposed to be this way, saints. We're supposed to follow Jesus wherever He leads us. Let the chips fall where they may. John the Baptist had a six-month ministry. That's not very uh, long and impressive, is it? But it was all those miracles he did, wasn't it? Uh, He didn't do any miracles? And yet Jesus said, there has been no one born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. Why is that? Because when God said He did, where the Spirit led Him, He followed. That's what's required of you. Keith is required that he follows Jesus wherever Jesus leads him to go. Keith is not required to outshine Eric. Keith is not required to outsing Matthew or play drums better than Nick. He's required to do what Jesus tells him because that makes Jesus his Lord and Keith his servant. Why did God lead them in the desert 40 years? To find out what was in their hearts and so that they might know He was God. We need to quit giving lip service. The church says, and Isaiah prophesied about it. These people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We say Jesus is Lord and God raised Him from the dead until He tells us to do something we don't want to do. And then we're like, Jesus who? Isn't He the Mexican lives down the street? You know, Yeah, He lives in the barrio. Come on, we can go talk to Him. His wife makes the best soft tacos. Jesus who? Because we don't want to deal with the fact that we're not gods to ourselves. The original problem in humanity was when man said, I want to decide for myself what is good for me to do and bad for me to do, and rejected God. What we've done is given up that right. 
that self-reliance that leads us to destruction. And we said, wherever you lead, I will follow. Friends, that includes leading to your death. Turn with me to Matthew 10. Tell me when you're in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 32. Whoever acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge Him before My Father in heaven. Boy, that's powerful. You stand up before men and you say, I want to be identified with Jesus? Then Jesus is not ashamed to be identified with you. Even if you suck pretty bad. Even if you've blown it all of your life. Maybe you spent half your life in a crack house. Tomorrow's a new day. What difference does it make? He is not ashamed of you if you're not ashamed of Him. The religious are ashamed of everybody, guys. I can't hang around Nick. Did you see the way Nick dresses? You know? I can't hang around Adam, you know? Adam likes grain that has been distilled. You know? I can't hang around him. I know Jesus turned that stuff from water into... Oh, grape juice. Right? We make up all of our little rules to make ourselves seem so holy. You know what holiness is? Saints, holiness is not what you don't do. Holiness is not that you don't cuss. You don't don't chew gum or wear nice underwear. I don't know. Whatever it is that the church says. Holiness is what you do for Jesus that He calls you to do. Holiness is putting Him first and everything else second, even if it's the church. You know, there was a time period in this world history where an evil pontiff with a wicked church reigned over most of the earth. They tried to hold people accountable to what they thought should be done. That meant that if Craig raped, pillage, and murder, he could pay a certain price, get an indulgence to do it, and that was okay. But if Charlotte simply wanted to hold the Word of God as the highest authority in her life, well, she's a bad person, let's burn her at the stake. That's not my opinion, that's Western civilization, that's history. The church, although it has been reformed in so many ways, still has all of the same problems. Nicholas was told here recently by a denomination, you know, we will not support you in your ordination efforts if you don't do what we tell you to do. Am I wrong or is that basically what... Yeah. What if God does support him? What if that is the calling on his life? Who are these men to say, we won't support you? There was a Jew named Gamaliel who was wise enough to watch what was happening with the apostles and said, look man, don't fight against these guys. You might find yourself fighting against God if He's with them. Instead, leave it alone. Sometimes the church just needs to leave things alone. If you don't have any responsibility in a situation, you ought to have no opinion. And you know what? In this church, very few other churches have any responsibility. So I'm not really all that concerned about their opinions. I want to teach the Word of God free of the encumbrances of worrying about what about Him or them or anyone else. And if I have a backpack ministry with a handful of people but I do it right, then Jesus will be pleased with me. I'm super happy that there's a billion and one people served at a church down the road. That's great. That's them. That's what God's called them to. I hope they do good at it. I want what God's called me to. But since this is not about me, I'm going to walk out of here and I'll be who Jesus called me to be. What about you? 
Everything in our lives boils down to whether or not we follow Him in every situation. And we all have different roadblocks. Y'all in Mark 10? 32. Whoever acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge Him before My Father in heaven. But whoever disowns Me before men, I will disown Him before My Father in heaven. Everyone take out your black highlighter. Cross right through that. Because the church doesn't want you to know that. That's not how you build big buildings. That's not how you get people to feel warm, fuzzy feelings about God. But that knowledge will help you Agape, God, when you understand that your life is to be about obedience to Jesus, not simply intellectual acknowledgement, it will change your life. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but the sword. When's the last time you heard a message on that? He explains it. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. How could he say that? Because when God speaks to Lindy and gives Lindy her unique call in life, He shows her what she's supposed to do. Her mom and dad might not have got the same vision. Maybe they wanted Lindy to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, I hold up my children all the time. I say, Lord, these are yours. You do with them what you want. But that's not the test. The test is when He wants to do something with them that I don't want Him to do. That's when we get to decide whether or not He's Lord or Eric is going to be a miniature demagogue in his own life and rebellion to God. Now, that would be the most difficult test in my life as my children. I don't know what yours is, but the Scripture is full of people who have to make these choices. Look at verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. How many times have you seen that preached? No? What did you hear? When you turn on the purple hair channel with the thrones, what do you hear? You tell me the truth. Send me your money and God will send you more than you can send me. If it works that way, saints, why don't churches just send out checks to everybody in the United States and let God send them back seven times more? You will never hear me teach that. Never. It appeals to greed, and it doesn't work that way. Next time there's a telephone on that says, Brad Hall, I got a word, and it's that a man in an orange shirt is supposed to send me $1,000, and God will send you back $7,000. Well, let's just turn that on in. Call the telephone. Say, I would like you to send me the 1000 and God will send you back the 7000 because it's a spiritual law, right? God is not a cookie cutter. He does not call cookie cutters. We can't compete with each other. And there are no laws in the kingdom. This is a relationship. Laws were just intended to show you God's divine character. They were intended to show you about God, who He is, what He's about. Not so you could throw Him in a mathematical formula and try to profit off of Him. God's investment program. You know, Listen to them. They'll have you buy gold coins. They'll have you buy magic snake oil, nani juice, or whatever it is that they want to sell that day. Fishers of funds instead of fishers of men. I want to follow Jesus. That means we have some good fundraising ideas sometimes. But if Jesus doesn't seem to be in it, we can it quickly. It's not even good to dwell on it. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What a powerful scripture. 
Turn with me to Mark 10. We've got to move on a little more quickly. Your preacher gets long-winded. Mark 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on His way, a man ran up to Him and fell on his knees before Him. Good teacher. We know there's a problem now. Flatter him. Butter him up. He asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. It's a rhetorical question. He's trying to get him to think about what he said. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, does he really want to know the way to be saved or is he trying to justify himself? You ever ask a question but you had a predetermined answer? Jesus looked at him and loved him. You hear that? He looked at him and loved him. I want to ask you something. Is love just the warm, fuzzy feeling or is open rebuke better than hidden love? When you say you love somebody, do you love them enough to tell them what they wouldn't want to hear? Because Jesus looked at him and loved him. And what's that next verse? Hmm? One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus could look. There was an obstacle in this man's life that had to be removed before he could follow him without attachment to other things. It's a different obstacle than I have. I didn't have to sell everything. I didn't have anything. My first furniture was cardboard boxes covered in sheets. And we were happy. At this, the man's face fell. Now there's an expression. Does this mean literally his face fell off? At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to His disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at His words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus said said to them, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. Peter goes on to say, Man, I've left everything for you. He said it won't be... It won't fail to be rewarded in this life or in the life to come. Jesus will ask of you the impossible. You understand that? He will ask of you things that seem impossible for you. Your first response should be, I can't. But with Him, you can. He turns can'ts into can. That way He gets glory for it through what you do, or rather He does in you. That's the Gospel. That's what it's about. Quit worrying about who is on your left and right. Quit worrying about mother and father and mother-in-law and all of those things. Jesus said very clearly, if you won't follow Me, despite what those people think, you are not worthy of Me. Now, I'm sorry that that's the Gospel. What I'd like to tell you is the fairy tale. Close your eyes, raise a pinky, repeat after Me the magic incantation, show up tithe. Eat some donuts every now and then. Maybe eat Jesus in a little wafer. Some people teach that too. And you're good to go. That's not it. The Gospel is He will require of you the impossible, but He will empower you to do it. The Gospel is you weren't right 
You weren't righteous. You weren't perfect when you were called. You were truthfully pretty nasty. And he figured that when he cleaned you up, you would be so thankful you would do anything for him. That's the gospel. The guy who wrote this said that he calls sinners of which he was the worst. Paul said that. That he was the worst sinner. How many preachers will stand on the stage and say that and mean it? Not be false humility. Luke 13.20 I'm only going to ask you all to bear with me just a little bit longer. But I simply have to follow him where he has told me to go. There was a fat guy riding a little donkey. It's a Jewish parable. And the donkey was wondering how long before this fat guy gets off my back. And the fat guy was wondering how long before I can get off this little donkey's back. The moral to the parable was about Israel, who was more relieved that they left Egypt. The Egyptians who were being afflicted because of their presence or the Israelites that were afflicted because they were in Egypt. I feel a little bit like the fat guy on the donkey sometimes. The word that God gives us is a burden at times. It's sweet like honey in your mouth and it burns in your stomach sometimes because it goes down to your core. But I'm always relieved when I can stand up here and know that I have said and done what God told me to do because that's where the satisfaction comes. Guys, He will call you right through the trenches and not very many people will do it. Everybody says it, but nobody actually does it. Luke 13.20 cuts right to the chase. Tell me if you're there. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as He made His way to Jerusalem. Someone asked Him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But He will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? What's the answer, friends? Yes. This whole nation was called to be saved. This is the church of its day. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you. We taught. You taught in our streets. But He will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evil doers. We see that word evil doer and we say, Well, those are for evil people. Friends, do you know what evil is? If righteousness is doing what He tells you to do, when He tells you to do it, what is evil? Not doing what He tells you to do. The difference between a sheep and a goat in the kingdom of God are the sheep did something for God. The goats did not do. They failed to try. God can put up with your failures trying and you screwing it up, but He will not put up with you failing to try. Who would purchase somebody that will not work in their kingdom? There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last 
who will be first and first who will be last. What is wrong with Joel and I walking together and me saying, Lord, what about him? What about him? We don't have the ability to judge whether or not somebody else... We can't compare ourselves with somebody else to know if we're doing all right. Jesus Himself said, some who seem to be first are going to end up last in the kingdom. And others who seem to be last will end up first. You are measured by yourself. Nick will stand before the Bema seat of Christ. That's a word that means the judgment seat of Christ. He will give an account for everything done in the body. That's what the Bible teaches. Nick's not going to give an account for how he stacked up with Gary Kenshin or how he stacked up with Adam. It's the wrong perspective. You are held 100% accountable for what God's called you to do. And if you think there's no hope for you, I heard somebody say that about a brother in the church. He thought there was no hope for him. Since you need to understand, that's why he called you. He didn't call you because you looked like you had a great deal of potential. He called you because people would go, only God could do this. You see how bad off that guy was and what God did with him? That's how God gets glory. You ever seen somebody restore cars? It's amazing when you take a pile of rust and make something beautiful, isn't it? Well, God's in the restoration business. Romans 12 speaks of something, and we're not going there. So does Corinthians 12. It says that there are many members of one body, and they all have different functions. And that it would be ridiculous for an eye to go, I wish I was an ear, or an ear to say, I wish I was an eye, because they're both needed. Ephesians 4 teaches the government in the church, which is an example for the church, is like a man's hand. That some are appointed as apostles, some as prophets, some teachers, some pastors, and some evangelists. That's a five-fold ministry. They all have different functions. Starting with this guy on the end, the teacher here. He's usually working close with a pastor. The pastor's the one that's married to the sheep. The teacher's job is to make sure that the complicated things in the kingdom are made simple for everybody to understand. A teacher does not stand up and display his knowledge. That's not teaching. A teacher conveys his knowledge to other people. The pastor is the one that's married to the sheep. He loves you. He cares for you. He may not speak well or he might speak well. His job is to help you through the difficult times in your life, to lead you, help you find the Lord's leading. The evangelist is a little taller than the rest. He stands out. You find the evangelist in places pretty easily. He's the guy that is burning with zeal and excitement. He feels like something's wrong because people are going to hell all around him and it moves him day and night. And occasionally he can be offensive, especially if he stands by himself. I won't do that for you, but you understand what I'm saying, right? The prophet points. He's to point out God's will in the church. He's to say, ah, Agabus was a prophet. He says, there is going to be a famine. We need to start taking up an offering now for the brothers there because I know by the Spirit it's going to happen. The apostle can touch every single office in the fivefold ministry because his primary job is to raise up those all of the others. So he's got to be able to stand in their stead. Each one is different, just like the fingers on your hand. Each one has a different function in the body. But together they form the fist of God and they take it to the enemy. Now, if that's the government of the church, if that's the leadership, what do you think the body's like? A bunch of competing cookie cutters? Not at all. If your gift's administration, then do that. If your gift is giving, then do that. If your gift is encouraging, then do that. And remember that you have multiple gifts. You're unique. God called you that way. Last thought. When you go to a church, 
Everybody has the same kind of Bibles. Everybody dresses the same way. If pastor went to a certain seminary and is in a certain denomination, then that's what they all cling to. I want just the opposite. I want you to find exactly what God's called you to be. I want you to be as unique as He's called you to be. Just don't use your freedom to sin. I only want you to reflect me to the extent that I'm reflecting Jesus. In your own personality, you need to embrace it. God did not call you to be like me or anybody else. He called you because you're different. You'll reach different people and you'll enjoy life a whole lot better not having to please a younger or older lover in your life. Your goal is to please Jesus and Him alone. And He knew just what you were when He called you. Y'all stand up and let's pray. Y'all, we go through an awful lot in here sometimes to make our point. Nick said that when I preach, I preach like I'm preaching to a bigger crowd. Maybe that's just in faith. I don't know. But my real goal is not to have a bigger crowd. It's to have people that are sold out to the point where they would do anything for Jesus. If that sounds cultish, it's because you don't know what the real church is. If it sounds fanatical, well, how fanatical were the apostles? All of them gave their life for Jesus. If it doesn't sound practical, you're called to do the impossible. God's the only thing that makes it possible. The real question is, will you follow Him or not? Wherever He goes, we sing the songs, we say it, but will you do it? Because in the end... It's your actions that show what you believe. It's not your belief that gets you saved. It's the belief that is strong enough to show it in action. The whole book of James is about that. The whole Hebrew faith was about that. Think back over your life. Has it shown what it needs to show? Tomorrow can be a brand new day. Follow Him from this point forward and He will make you new, white, free from stain in every way. That's His goal. He wants you to love Him much because you've been forgiven much. Holy God, we do love You. Lord, I confess before You openly right now for each time that You have spoken and I was a coward. For each time that You have told me to shut up and I spoke up or told me to speak up and I shut up. Lord, with all of my heart, I just want to be led by You. Your Word says that as many as are led by Your Spirit are Your sons. I want the world to know I'm Your Son. I stand up and proclaim You in Word, but I want to proclaim You in my deeds. Holy, holy God, I pray that Your good and pleasing and powerful Spirit would be upon this church. That as these members go out into the world, that they would perform outside the church the very things that we've practiced in here so that You would have a great testimony of sinners who were turned to righteousness, of people who did the impossible for God because He was with them. In the name of Jesus we pray.